Hey, it's the other Steve here. I wanted to let you in on something that Steve J got up to last week. He was interviewed by Morris Brzezinski of the Love That Album podcast about his career as a graphic artist for two different independent labels, both based here in Boston, Rykodisc and Rounder Records. He was instrumental in creating some great album and CD artwork, oftentimes working side by side with the recording artist a process that doesn't always happen at major labels. So if you ever wondered what music industry veteran meant in his All Music Books profile, here's your chance to find out. All Music Podcasts and Love That Album are both proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, where you can listen to nearly 100 podcasts, all dedicated to music. Okay, now here's this week's episode. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Bradley Morgan. He's the author of U2's The Joshua Tree Planting Roots in Mythic America. Welcome, Bradley. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's a fascinating book, and uh, you know I have some questions about how this all started because it's it's really unique. Can you tell us how this book came about and what was your concept behind it? So the reason why this came, book came about was because when Trump was elected, I started seeing in ways large and small in my life and and hearing from others about a widening dichotomy in America. This this increasing division based on partisan lines. And it was incredibly disturbing. I started feeling ways about myself that I didn't particularly like. I started becoming more cynical and fearful of things. And rightfully so, because a lot of bad things were happening within that presidency and, you know, including things such as um, emboldening white supremacy, emboldening racism, encouraging violence. And I didn't like living like that. And so I started to just really get back into enjoying things that brought me happiness and peace and kind of centered me in a lot of different ways um, to keep me from being a cynical person to kind of, yes, acknowledge and understand that things are difficult right now, but things can get better. And one of the ways that I did that was by just diving into the music that I loved and finding messages that were there before, but I probably was not cognizant of until just within the last few years with Trump's presidency. And when I started listening to the Joshua Tree from that perspective, I was hearing a lot of things that I didn't hear before. I I love that album. I've been listening to that album for a long time, listened to it many times, and maybe on some deep unconscious level, I knew that there were these larger themes about the dichotomy of America because I heard elements of there, but I wasn't able to piece it together entirely for myself. But when I started seeing that increasing division in the dichotomy of America here under Trump, I started making a lot more sense. It's interesting. And uh, I want to set the table a little bit because this discussion goes in a couple of different directions before kind of merging into a similar take. 
Let me ask you this. Uh, you write that the original vision was a bit different than how it would turn out. How so? So the original vision for my book was going to be a lot more critical of Trump. And the book is very critical of Trump and a critical of the Reagan administration and how the Reagan administration's influence over the last 40 years have still impacted American politics and American society today. And I wanted to dive in a lot more deeper on a, and a lot more academic level and have the U2's music and the Joshua Tree specifically kind of be a gateway to that. And when I was putting together the proposal, I was working with um, a, a wonderful editor named Rebecca Suzanne, who had worked with me on that proposal. And she brought it up to me. She said, you know, you're writing about a band and you're writing about the music. You need to talk more about the music. You know, quite frankly, I, I owe a lot of gratitude to her for that because I don't think this book would have been published with my original vision. And so then the challenge came to be, how could I communicate what I wanted to communicate and not compromise that while adding a lot more reflection about the music? I read a lot of political books. Um, and I read a lot of music books as well, but I just, I didn't feel confidence to write about music extensively. I didn't really write about music before this book. I've written a couple blogs for a community radio station, and I had one article published on Bob Dylan's song, Murder Most Foul, that he released during COVID. But that wasn't enough for me to really feel like, oh, I can tackle a whole book on an album. But when I started mapping that out, I, and I started to realize, oh, you know this already. Just speak passionately, do your research, because that was a big thing for me, was that uh, the, the research element. I didn't want to put myself in a position where things could get challenged. So thanks to the Chicago Public Library System and a whole litany of other U2 authors who are very wonderful and uh, very communicative and supportive, that I was able to get to a place where I felt comfortable writing about music when I hadn't before. Well, you know, I will say that it is deeply about music and it's extremely personal, which I think many of the best books are. So a shout out to you and a shout out to your editor for telling you to, to write more about the music. Joshua Tree was huge out of the gates everywhere, certainly in America. I read a thoughtful review of the album when I was reading your book and doing some research in here. And it said, quote, if war was an exploding political bomb, the Joshua Tree is a journey through its aftermath, trying to find sense and hope in the desperation. And you suggested as you two calling out America, who is losing its way, when the, when the album first came out, not all these years later. You know, I think it's important to note that, that lyrically, obviously, you two has long been a politically banned, but lyrically, when this first came out, there were politics involved. There absolutely were politics involved. And when you write about U2, there's only one of two subjects you can write about when it comes to U2. It's either religion or politics. Both are interwoven throughout their entire discography. From their perspective, growing up in Ireland, there was this sense that America was sort of like this mythical place where you could go to and your problems would be solved. I mean, they were coming from a place that historically for generations had experienced Violence had experienced um, starvation, and so it kind of just developed this mythical idea in their minds. And when they started touring in America, they were seeing that what they had grown up to believe about America through music, through television, through film, or even just through just like the generational dialogue about this country was not true. 
they saw that there was policies within the government, within religious institutions that was marginalizing people who do not fit into their vision. So when I say their vision, a patriarchal, hierarchical, white ethno state. And in that, you have whole groups, whole swaths of people who are marginalized in the process, people of color, women. And this was an incredibly shocking thing for you two to come and realize. And as opposed to just falling into that desperation of like, okay, this, this is all a lie, they reframed that by acknowledging what was happening, but reframing it from a perspective of, yes, this is bad, but there is a place that we could work to collectively as humans that will not be perfect. It will never be perfect, but there's an end goal that we can try to at least strive towards. And when I think about when they came to that conclusion in the mid eighties and releasing this album, and now that's kind of been my approach on how I handle a lot of social and political issues now is that there's an acknowledgement of what is happening and we need to atone for that. But let's not get caught up in the self-flagellation of that and try to work towards that better society. Yes, it may not be attainable. It may not be perfect and it may never happen, but it gives us something to work towards. But when I think about this, I think that if it wasn't at least attainable or possible, then what's the point? Because when I see activists marching the street or when I see them speaking, if it was really that none of this is possible, then what's the point? The fact that people are actually marching out there in the streets, fighting for things, tells me that we believe, if we may not acknowledge it or realize it immediately, that we can get to some place that is better than where we are now. In that answer, you mentioned the concept of reframing. And I think that's a really, really good word about the anniversary, 30-year anniversary of this record and and your book. And it's important to note that you know this was recorded in 1987, which was during America's Reagan revolution, which kicked off a lot of this intense dialogue. You know, those lyrics are in the songs and we'll get to those, uh, but they're oblique, you know. And one of the things I learned is that the working title was much, much more direct. Yes, the working title originally was called um, The Two Americas. And the original vision was that this was going to be a double album with the first disc focused on more American themes and utilizing American roots music as influences with the second disc being continuation of what you two had done before, relying on European sounds, more post-punk sounds. But that concept didn't really mesh well for them as they continued to think about it. So they doubled down on the Americanness. And so not only just addressing America in terms of its themes, but relying on the sounds and culture of America to inform the aesthetic and aural direction of the album. So the 30th anniversary was 2017, and you two were certainly critical of Trump before the election. And then after he was elected, they saw the opportunity to critique the existential crisis they saw in Trump. But they also used the tour to unite people impacted by the division that followed the election. Isn't that right? Yes, this is absolutely right. And um, this is an incredible thing to point out because one of the reasons why we have this extreme dichotomy, this, this widening division in our country is that there are systems larger than us as individuals that gain something from that, that profit from that, or they gain an ideological advantage by keeping us divided, this whole like divide and conquer kind of thing. 
I mean, U2 is, they're known for their politics. People know what they think. They're not afraid to share with us what they think. But what I give them credit for is to share with us what they think while not alienating people who may not agree with them. And instead finding ways to essentially work across the aisle, find ways that unite us on a common element, because it's through identifying our commonalities that we can then address our differences. And when we talked about earlier about assessing where we are now as a nation and where we have been and the flaws of that nation, it's an acknowledgement of where we are and how we got here. And you have to have an acknowledgement before you can progress and move forward. And I think that works not only just on a larger sense when we think about the mythical idea of America versus a reality, but how we interact with people who may be different than us. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Bradley Morgan, who's the author of U2's The Joshua Tree. Let's talk about some of the songs specifically, because first of all, I think everyone would acknowledge it's a great record. You know, we've talked a little bit about the lyrics, but not specifically. So let's start with the opener, Where the Streets Have No Name. Uh, That song had an interesting journey with its conceptual genesis in Ethiopia and then in Ireland before shifting into America. Can you talk about that? So Bono was invited to go to Ethiopia on a humanitarian mission, and this was after Live Aid. And he was initially apprehensive at first because he didn't want it to be a big public relations thing. He wanted to go there anonymously and see what was happening, offer support and aid in ways that he could. And when he was there, it was a very impactful journey for him. He started to kind of see where he came from and Western civilization as being just spoiled children. Um, There was a dignity with the Ethiopian people that he was interacting with that he did not see with people in America, with people in Ireland. And even the geography had an effect on him because the idea of where the streets have no name, he's in Ethiopia and he's, he's seeing things in that community and juxtaposing it with his own experiences growing up. And he thinks about like the street you grow up on determines your socioeconomic class that there's a good part of town, there's a bad part of town, there's a good block, bad block, and he's just not seeing that here. So the idea of where the streets have no name is this kind of, I don't want to say fictional, but that concept of there's something to attain here, where you live does not determine your worth. And we see that now just in so many different ways. During the COVID pandemic, all this data that's revealing that communities that are largely brown and black are not getting the same services and resources as more white and more affluent communities. So this whole idea of you know where you live in your community determines your health and safety, that still reverberates nearly four decades on from when Bono wrote that song. And it is a very oblique song. It's kind of hard to get that point. It can easily be missed. But that experience taught him that There needs to be this place where we are not demarcated by our differences, whether they're ethnic, gender, class-based, that we need to be able to have access to the things that are going to make us happy and healthy and contributing members of society. Well, I am a firm believer in the obliqueness, and I think most of the really, truly great songs out there perhaps have a different meaning for everyone. I still haven't found what I'm looking for is, on the surface anyways, a beautiful blank slate wide open to interpretation. There's spirituality, love, perhaps the America of myth, all of those things. Yeah, I still haven't found what I'm looking for is a fantastic example of that obliqueness and 
the differences between the more common understanding of that song versus one that might be a little bit more informed, or at least the argument that I make in my book. It's a song that just on the surface to a lot of people is about religion and Jesus and spiritual journeys. And certainly that element is in there. That's the foundational element. But this was a song that I really struggled with writing about because a lot of the music comes from gospel, which is a predominantly Black art form. And it's an art form that along with blues and soul music has been appropriated by white artists who then become more successful commercially and critically than the sources that they're appropriating. And so when I was writing this chapter, I had to really take in consideration, is you 2 doing the exact same thing? And I, I, I write about in a conference that was held to kind of discuss that with some musicians and some, some jazz musicians, and they were talking about the white appropriation of Black music. When I was going through this chapter, I had to return to it many times. And one of the last times I returned to it was after the George Floyd murder. That's when I really wrestled with this notion of white appropriation. Diving into that song and doing a lot more research into it, I ultimately realized that there's a larger theme here that contributes to the case I'm making for this album. Because he's singing in the lyrics uh, about kingdom come, where all the colors will bleed into one. And he's still talking about that idea where we're not, we're not separated by our surface level attributes. So he's talking about that place that's more universal, that's more human. I think contextually, that kind of theme raises above the kind of song that is your white person appropriating Black music song. And Bullet the Blue Sky is exactly the opposite, in my opinion. It is the most overtly political and perhaps the loudest call for accountability and responsibility. What are your thoughts on that song? That is such a great song, and it comes from a very emotional place. Bono had toured uh, throughout Central America to see how Americans' foreign policy was having an effect in those areas. He went to Nicaragua, he went to El Salvador, and in interviews, he talks about seeing bodies thrown from vans and seeing jet planes and seeing the devastation, and it had a significant effect on him. His reaction in Bullet the Blue Sky is a very visceral, raw, emotional response. And for someone who's a very peaceful guy, I can imagine that was really disturbing. We all have a duality inside of us. I mean, we're all capable of a whole range of emotions and actions. And I think this song was like almost like exercising a demon for him because he was so fearful of that kind of reaction. But he takes that fear and he takes that reaction and he pushes it back out there to, to get you to think about what he is saying and to get you to think about what he saw. So, and that song continues to have a relevance outside of the violence in Central to South America that's attributed to the Reagan administration, and especially in a live setting, because that raw emotional reaction to injustice or violence can be applied to anything that's happened in the last you know, 30 years, whether it be 9-11, whether it be violence stemming from economic disparity. When they toured the album in mid-20-teens for the Innocence Experience Tour, a lot of the visuals in the concert conveyed images of like Wall Street and you know corporate fat cats and stuff like that, because that was what people were angry about at the time. So part of the reason why that song has an enduring resonance is because that raw, visceral, emotional reaction is applicable to a lot of areas that are causing further disparity within our society. 
And, you know, the casual listener may say, well, I never picked up that or, you know, I didn't realize uh, that these songs were so deep. But, you know, U2 has always explored politics with both a capital and a small p. One of the ones that most people probably do know, Bad, or one of their biggest hits, you know, that deals with heroin, which had always been a big problem in Ireland, as it is in America. You know, there's also Wire from the same album, Unforgettable Fire, which was great. I returned to that album while I was reading your book. And on this album, it's quite specific in Running to Stand Still. I mean, it's apparent that that's what that song's about. So Running to Stand Still is a song Bono wrote about an apartment complex that he grew up near called Ballyman Flats in Dublin. And Dublin had decided to eliminate a lot of these local neighborhoods and then instead move them to these large high rises, you know, that disrupted the communities that had been established for so long in these neighborhoods. And, and then when you have a group of people who are marginalized because of, of their class and you uproot them and you put them in a situation where they don't have the same resources and the same community connections, they're most at risk for falling into substance abuse. Bono and the rest of you two certainly had friends and, and, and acquaintances who did fall into that. And I think when you grow up near that kind of thing happening, it does have an effect on you. Certainly, there's something about his development where this community and the uprooting of it had a really big impact on him. There's a lot in here. You know, like many of the Irish, religion plays a big part. You know, Exit explores Americans' fascination with, you know, the so-called heartland murders and it's a darker demonic side that Bono eyeballs, as one of the authors says. And it's interesting because that is still relevant today. And, you know, as we talked earlier on the 2017 30th anniversary tour, it allowed the band, and they talk about this in your book, that they had reexamined through a different lens, through a newer lens. And, you know, a video of Exit was also repurposed to focus on Trump. So in the original context of Exit, when the album was released, Bono was reading a lot of American authors who are part of the new journalism movement. This included Flannery O'Connor, Truman Capote, Norman Mailer. And it, it's fascinating to him because it's a window into the American heartland and something that was very interesting to him and sparked his curiosity. And in the song, he writes about a figure who's wandering the desert and feels alienated by society, feels left behind by his society and lives on the margins. And within those margins, he's allowed to kind of just go through this feedback loop that then devolves him into a being that wants to commit a kind of murder, this, this person who's been left behind by society. And by the time the 30th anniversary tour comes around, the context does change a little bit. So when you saw the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree tour, they opened up Exit with a video from a series in, from the 50s called Trackdown. It was a sort of Western series that aired on CBS. And they had a clip of a kind of like snake oil salesman who comes into this Western town. And he's saying, you know, I will protect you from the outsiders. I will build a great big wall around your town that will keep out all these outsiders. And the townsfolk are very divided. Some don't see a big wall built around their town as being a good thing. And they see this guy as just, you know, he's full of bunk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's here just to profit off of us and, you know, leave us behind. He doesn't care. And there's others who like, you know, I like what this guy says. You know, he's speaking for my values. And doesn't this sound familiar? It sounds like, you know, what we heard during Trump running for his term in office with, you know, I'm going to build a big wall in Mexico and have people pay for it. And then 
we have a whole cultural dialogue about the xenophobia and of that and the white supremacy that follows. And the funny thing about this video is that the snake oil salesman who's talking about this wall is named Trump. And that video is not a reference to the former president. It's a reference to his father, who was very notorious for being a slumlord and for just being an incredibly bad person on top of being a bad landlord. So much so that even Woody Guthrie wrote a song about him criticizing Fred Trump. So when we think about that video and in the context of the rest of Exit, it opens up a whole new realm of possibility of what that song could mean when we think about the America that Trump fostered. This one where there is this wide dichotomy, where there's one, this widening division, where people feel like I don't fit into this society, so I need to act out in a way that gives me importance. And one of the enduring ways I see how this song can be relevant is when we think about a lot of the shootings that have happened in schools or at parades or just in crowds throughout America, all these shootings are being perpetrated by young white men and There's something that's happening in our society that is poisoning these men's minds. You know, and towards the end of the album, it's not the last song. In God's Country, despite the name, is not about religion, but more about Bono's sense of alienation and perception, anyway, of the failure of the American dream. You're right. So when he sings in God's Country, he's talking about the people, you know, whether or not they're geographically in the heartland or they're metaphorically in the heartland, but it's a group of people who don't fit in with the vision that the political leaders have or the religious leaders have, that they are the victims of disastrous domestic policies that are being conducted at their expense. And so he sings about these people, you know, sleep comes like a drug here in God's country. What he means by that is that these people have really nothing to look forward to, that they're living in a country where they can see that people are advancing socially. People are advancing in a lot of different ways, but they're still being left behind. They are living on the margins and nothing's being done for the benefit of them. It's for the people who run the institutions who are getting richer and more powerful at the expense of them. And they're just being left behind to kind of just figure it out. And whether or not someone in that kind of situation falls into drugs or they fall into violence, there's nothing there that really saves them from that. And they're lost in this country, here in God's country. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Bradley Morgan, who's the author of U2's The Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. It is a deep dive into this record. He's got a lot of research to back it up, but there's some other things that you dive into, which really help explain kind of the concept, which is very broad and deep of the record. And um, one of the things is, it's the first time that the band really tried to incorporate American roots music into the mix. So yes, they did become very interested in roots music, just touring through America. Because when they were growing up in Ireland, their understanding of like American roots music were very just bland, generic white people appropriating black music that they would hear on their local radio station. But The Edge talks about when he's touring through America, that he's able to access public radio and he's hearing real blues, real R&B musicians, things that he didn't necessarily have access to before. This was also just kind of furthering their interest in American roots music. And they had like a little bit of an awkward stumble in, in how they reflected that. If you go to YouTube, there's a really, really funny clip of them 
doing their first like Americanized performance, but it's for Irish television. They look like extras from Easy Rider. You know, they look absolutely ridiculous and they're chugging along this blues and roots music that they hadn't them- themselves been practicing that long. They perform a song that's never, ever seen the light of day. And it was the only performance a song called Woman Fish, which is pretty ridiculously awful. And they also do um, a cover of uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door, but they also use this as an opportunity to premiere Trip Through Your Wires, which on the album is like the song that's most rooted in that kind of American roots music style. And it doesn't sound too bad, but for them, it was an actual like considerable journey for them to get to a place where they can confidently play roots music that not only honored the tradition, but elevated it um, to what they were trying to do. And, you know, that's understandable. I mean, these are guys who grew up in Ireland, not around this kind of music. And the fact that they were able to pull it off, I think is remarkable. And of course, there's the desert landscapes of the American West, which play a huge part in, you know, the concept, the songwriting, the music, and also the album cover. So they described how cinematic the landscape was, which is true. I mean, it's a very cinematic part of the country. And it's fascinating to them because it's, they don't have deserts in Ireland. It's something that's completely new to them. And I don't know if you or if some of your listeners have not been to the desert. I went for the first time in 2019 as a 31-year-old adult, and it was remarkable. It was incredibly amazing. And when you're in that kind of environment, you do get very self-reflective. When they were seeing the desert for the first time, they were thinking a lot about their own identities. Even the edge says that they didn't understand their own Irishness until they went into the American desert, that to be able to get out of side of a place, you know, and then that's a part of you, you think, oh, I understand all of this so far, but there's more to learn when you get out of that into an environment that challenges you. And doesn't have Guinness. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. If there, I don't know. There's a place in, in, in Death Valley where you can get a good pour. So I would wrap this up with some fun questions. Um, is this your favorite U2 album? That's a hard thing to say because I do love this album. I also love Octung Baby. I, I think I probably played The Joshua Tree more than any other U2 album because of this book. And I think I connect to it in ways that I don't with other albums. It probably is. You know, I do like Octoon Baby a lot, but it, it probably is. It, it's such a hard thing because they're both so good and they have such other great albums, you know. Definitely. Boy is great. Unforgettable Fire is fantastic. The last year I've been really, really diving deep into October more and paying attention in ways that I hadn't before with that album. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you, I saw them on that tour here in Boston. Oh, long, that's so long cool. Long time ago. Uh, do you have a favorite track on the album? I think it'll be One Tree Hill. There's an energy to that song I really, really, really enjoyed. And writing about that song was was a fascinating experience because just hearing about it and just reading about it here and there, you just hear that it's a tribute to Greg Carroll, who was a roadie for U2 that had died in an accident. And he had developed a really deep friendship with the members and the crew of U2. And I hadn't seen a lot written about One Tree Hill. Uh, and there's a lot more deeper themes about death, about the experience of witnessing death, the experience of having death around you. There's even lyrics that are pertaining to um, Victor Hara as well, the, the, the Chilean folk singer. Mm. So diving into that song and tying it to the theme of the album in my book, that stands out to me as being a very significant song because I went on a real journey with that song. How do you think this album will be remembered? What will be its legacy? 
Well, I think that legacy has already been established being an album that's 35 years old. But the fascinating thing about this is that I, I have friends and colleagues who read the book who were in college when the album came out. And they had told me, you know, I listened to this album a lot when it came out or it was huge when it came out, but like I hadn't really listened to it since it was big. So it had been like over 30 years. And a lot of them had told me when they read the book, they had no idea about any of this. And it really changed their perception, understanding of both the album and U2 for the positive. And I thought that was a really, really good thing to hear because um, that made me feel really good. But beyond feeling good, you know, I had never really written before. And when I started to write this book, I was thinking like, who am I? Like, who am I to write about one of the biggest selling albums of all time? What can I possibly add to this? I went through that and I put the book together and I released it and people read it. And to have people who weren't as familiar with the album or who hadn't listened to it for a long time come to that kind of conclusion, it was very validating because I didn't want this book to be just fan service. I wanted this book to be both for people who love the album and you too, and for people who had no idea about what the album is or what it's about. Well, you forgot the one question, which is how the hell am I going to get a book deal? And you did, and you answered that question. And it's a really great book. Congratulations. And thank you for joining us. Bradley Morgan, the author of U2's The Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. It is indeed a deep read and uh, very relevant and fascinating for these times. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you so much. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.